0: I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't.
1: Help me. Help. Help. Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here is back here in the Manly Man Cave, the Warthog Man Cave in the Piney Woods of North Central Florida. And uh, we are, of course, in the Melon Law Studio, the only official law firm partner of the University of Florida Gators, a full-service law firm, and protected by crime prevention 24 365 and sponsored by all their great guests. And a new guest we have, Caliber Coffee, which I will talk about a little bit later on the That's show. Great. Yeah, more extensively. And, um, of course, today is our great day with Ted Yoho, who is in the keys today, and we'll uh, uh, patch him in in just a moment. But first of all, I would really like to take this time to thank uh, my co-host when I'm gone, Tim Martin. He had some great shows, uh, some very, very interesting guests. And uh, those are available, of course, for you to see at wardscottfiles.com, where we archive everything, as well as on all the other platforms that are out there carrying the show, both audio and video. So uh, I would suggest you go back if you missed them, and take a listen to them. Some of the subjects were really spot on, like um, the um, way in which the medical the cultural has gotten involved with this chant transgenderism and yep. has really kind of corrupted the <clears throat> medical care. That was a fascinating show. And of course, the classification, if you will, of the Constitution and how it's been strayed from, as we know, by politicians who don't seem to. Remember or recognize or care that what they do must be tied to that, and so those were some good shows. I want to thank Tim so much. Yeah, Tim um, does a
0: great job. He's very smart and educated on on the Constitution and
1: it it really did a great job, job. And and uh, uh, <clears throat> so I want to take time out and thank him for uh, being on the show and taking uh, care of business while I was gone today. Of course, Ted is always uh, as regular as the sun rising and setting uh, when he says he's going to be there, he's going to be there uh, no matter where he is. He's been everywhere from Mongolia to now Key West. And um, the reason I bring up to, uh, Mongolia is because early this morning I sent Ted a, uh, an article that is in the Wall Street Journal about Mongolia. I couldn't help kind of smiling because the Ward Scott Files, courtesy of Ted Yoho, was way ahead <laughs> of the Wall Street Journal. We talked about the uh, significant uh, contribution potential uh, to the United States that Mongolia represented, oh, I don't know, a month or two ago with Ted Yoho actually there. So, Ted, I'm going to pick up with you on what you saw in the Wall Street Journal article, and uh, we'll talk about what you and I were talking about while we went on the air. Very, very interesting.
0: Sure. Sure. Hey, I appreciate it. And uh, uh, shout out to your new sponsor. And I'm glad you got to travel out and see your family and, uh, or your family and go on a vacation. And uh, you brought up Tim. And Tim does an excellent job. I mean, I've known Tim uh, since I ran for Congress and served. But going to Mongolia, in fact, you know, when you sent me that article, I had a phone call this morning with uh, some of my contacts in Mongolia about the mining industry. And they want to help extracting copper, lithium cobalt and gold and um it for people that don't know mongolia is a country of about three point not quite 3.5 million people and it's nestled in between russia and china uh the way it was described to me when i was over there they have a drunken bear to the north and an angry dragon to the south and um, they're landlocked they don't have any ports uh but they have a tremendous amount of resource and they get their energy they're dependent on their energy from russia And from China Um, and then, uh, you know, so what they want to do is they want to extract these minerals for the benefit of Mongolia and they want to partner up with like minded countries, which would be uh, the liberal democracy type countries, uh, the United States, Japan, South Korea, um, UK, Canada, countries like that. Um, And the big pushes for these EVs, uh, the electric vehicle batteries. And um, and it was interesting because that article you sent was I mean, it was as accurate as I've ever seen written about Mongolia and really who they are. The thing people don't realize is Mongolia, if you go back to Genghis Khan, he ruled pretty much the world. All of Euro Asia was under his control. And it's funny because I had to bring this up to the Chinese uh, defense minister uh, because he was claiming the nine dash lines in the South China Sea was historically China's property, and I said, "Well, if you want to, if you want to have that argument, I says uh, Mongolia controlled all of Euroasia, so you're really part of Mongolia, not China." And I said, "And if you want to take historical claims, we're the first on the moon, and you're on the moon, so get off our property because we we're there." <laughs> And uh, he didn't see the humor in that because I didn't mean it as humor, but it's just don't have those arguments because they're, they're, they don't stand. So Mongolia became a democracy about 96 and uh, they broke away from communist China. And there's still a big communist influence, not just in politics, because we sat down with one of their ministers and uh, on a solar project. and He goes, this won't work. He goes, I'm a communist. And he goes, this just won't work for communists. <laughs> and I said, well, how's communism working for you? Uh, and he looked at me and just kind of, he didn't know how to take me, I think. And uh, anyways, so what they want to do is they they have been a democracy since 96. They have their challenges like all countries do. But they've been an ally of ours. The president's son, President Batubla, uh had his sons in Afghanistan and Iraq. They've been with us side by side uh through those 20 years of uh, misguided foreign policy on our part and um they've just been a strong ally and so they they look at other people and they're searching for what they call third neighbors they've got russia and china but they want third neighbors and japan is a big supporter of those south koreas and we are and australia and uh You know, there's a move now for these critical minerals and they want to team up with us. So that was really good. In fact, the undersecretary of state, I forget the person's name, was just over there. And um, they signed an MOU memorandum of of understanding for the critical minerals to come to the United States, which is a great thing. Um, And their prime minister is in America today. I think he came in Wednesday. He'll arrive today and he'll be there for about a week and hopefully we'll meet with the president. Um, And I hope that happens. Um, So they're strong. They're proud people um, and they want to partner up with us. And uh, we've got a great relationship with them.
1: What about those jobs that we never got? We talked about.
0: Well, you know, this was one of the most frustrating things. We had a bill called the Third Neighbor Trade Act. Mongolia produces roughly forty eight to fifty two percent of the world 's cashmere. The rest is in China does forty some percent and the rest is in Pakistan. America produces about it doesn 't even register on a scale the, uh, the cashmere we produce. The problem with what Mongolia has to deal with is the raw product of the cashmere eighty five percent of that plus goes to china China um goes ahead and makes it into yarn and fabrics and things like that. And I'm sure they dilute it with their Chinese um, uh, cashmere, but they sell it as Mongolian cashmere. And so they benefit greatly from the cashmere coming out of Mongolia. Mongolia has got a very uh, unique fiber, the length of it, and the crimp in it, and uh, it's very distinct. And so our bill, the Third Neighbor Trade Act, would allow mongolia to ship in kashmir to the united states and we do this with other countries especially africa so they could ship in duty free for five years cbo the congressional budget office studies these things and came up and said that for over a 10-year period it would cost us maybe a million dollars all right a million dollars so we're looking at five years so i assume that's probably close to a half million dollars the benefit is it would have created over 50,000 jobs in Mongolia. So you're creating an industry and it would cost America a half a million dollars. And some people will say I don't want to spend any money in another country to create jobs. But think of this, they're, they're an ally, they're a democracy, and we spend billions and billions of dollars in Central, uh, South America, all over the world in these different countries. We spend billions of dollars to develop their economies, and we have failed miserably in that. And that was one of the impetus behind me uh, introducing that bill the Development Finance Corporation. Um, So if we could create 50,000 jobs for half a million dollars in five years, why would you not do that? And we had the support of Nancy Pelosi, supposedly it was all in words and rhetoric. And uh, we could not get anybody, we couldn't get it to be moved. And uh, we did a lot of work on this. And it's just, a, it's a good common sense one from foreign policy standpoint. If I can help a country and create 50,000 jobs that's going to really boost their economy, why would you not do that? And, um, you know, it was just, the arguments were crazy. Uh, it just, it was crazy. And, you know, egos come into play. Um, Richard Neal was chairman Democrat it uh, was the chairman of the Ways uh, uh, Ways and Means Committee, and they have jurisdiction over that. And he just says, "No, we're not going to bring this up. It's against American jobs." And I don't think we. I, there was one goat herd I researched in America that was claimed to be um, cashmere, and it had ninety nine head in it. <laughs> so that was the biggest herd we had, and uh, it, it was a, a ridiculous argument. That's and my said, frustrations with politics.
1: You said both Republicans and Democrats kind of
0: uh, rejected it. If I, if yeah, I, Patrick McHenry out of North Carolina, who is the majority whip, um, he would not sign off on this because there's um, a coalition out there or an organization called NICTO, which is the North American cotton fight or something organization that does the lobbying for these uh, 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 garment makers in America. Well, we don't have a lot of those anymore. And I says, Patrick, there's one herd that has 99 head. I says, this wouldn't lose any jobs. He goes, if it loses one American job, I am not going to support it. I'm like, you moron, this will create 50,000 jobs over there. You know what? Just forget it. We'll send billions of dollars over to try to stimulate their economy uh so i mean it's just it's ignorance is what it is and then people like richard neal you know i don't know what his underlying factor was of why he wouldn't support this but egos get in play because here i'm a republican going to the majority leader of the ways and means committee who's a democrat and i said this is a good bill pelosi supports us you know richard Gere was there i mean talking about this bill and um you know these people have, they're like their little fight guns when they're on the committee chairman, especially a powerful one like that. And it's like, I will determine what comes up, not you, you peon, <laughs> you peasant. <laughs> and so <clears throat> that's politics in America. And I expect around the world a lot of them are like that.
1: Well, I was president of the College senate, and I had uh, committee chairs. And um, well, I tell you what, I got to select them. And I was very careful about who I put in charge of a committee. And um, it it was just an important thing. I studied Senate organizations quite a bit to figure out who were the effective leaders, who weren't, and Mm -hmm. how all that worked. And, you know, it was this constant kind of, you know, it's a a tiring job to be a politician. Um, You're constantly um, reinventing a wheel a lot of times. You have to go back and argue all over again with somebody else. The same argument, we just argue with another person. And you realize there's no transfer of information from those two people, no connectivity or networking. And there you go. You get stalled in the middle of a whole morass what? of, as you say, fiefdoms.
0: Let me ask you something, because this is something that's kind of always troubled me about Congress, because there was no direction at the leadership. When you did that and you're trying to put a team together, did you paint a vision of this is what we're trying to accomplish? These are the things that we want to work in and then bring in people that were supportive or could at least challenge you on better ways to get that done. But you knew the direction you were going. Did you do that? Yeah, the direction we were going was in something called shared governance. A shared governance is
1: a very difficult thing to get an administration to participate in in the college structure. They want the faculty to be kind of um, out of the loop, if you will. Uh, Like at the University of Florida, it's a faculty senate. It's not a college-wide senate. And we were the only college in America, or there's one other one maybe, that had what's called a college-wide senate. And it's interesting if you want me to take a moment to go into it, because it is, you know, something you would probably, you know, be interested in, as well as the people listening and watching. Uh, When we originally organized Santa Fe, we didn't have a faculty representation. We had, of course, the administration. And it's sort of like you'd have in the United States of America, an executive branch without a Congress. And so it was all exe- all bundled up in the executive branch because the state uh, gives all the power to the president in these, in these colleges. And then they distribute or share that power as they see fit. That's the way it works. So we were interested in shared governance. We were interested in getting the presidents to share information with us, and I became kind of a um, um, ombudsman, I didn't even say, you know overseer, um, going back and forth between the faculty and the administration to make sure that that information flow stayed open. And we had to get the presidents to buy off on shared governance to participate in it. And that was our vision. And then we wanted to pick people that would see the, you know, see that it was pretty easy to pick faculty, but it was harder to pick administrators because the reason we have a college-wide Senate is when the faculty originally wanted a Senate, President Robertson said, well, I won't give you a faculty Senate, but I'll give you a college-wide Senate. And he did it. put administrators in there to dilute the power of the faculty. You follow, Ted? Yeah. So you had faculty and administrators on these committees. Well, if you weren't careful, they they didn't get anything done, you know? Yeah. So my Uh, whole job was to pick Uh, guys, male or female, administrators or faculty, who would get things done towards shared governance. And uh, we made it work. It's now written into the other thing I did when I became the Senate president was organized a rewriting of the Constitution because the Constitution needed to be uh, brought up to snuff, if you will, in the way the dynamics of the college had changed. I engineered that whole rewriting of the Constitution. And the Constitution we have states that it is committed to shared governance. And when President Sasser came in, that was one of the first bargaining chips we had. Uh, if you're going to come here... You got to participate in shared governance. Well, he'd be crazy not to because, you know, he'd alienate that whole group of people. That's what you have at the University of Florida. You have the faculty alienated from the administration and they're at each other's throats all the time. Right. And I worked with the faculty Senate president, good guy, but he didn't have the power I had because he couldn't go to the administrators with any kind of Clout, you follow?
0: Well, something must have worked well there because Santa Fe became uh, the number one college in the United States. And so something worked well there. Our government now is broken. Everybody knows that. And I was reading today in the Wall Street Journal, you probably saw this too, that Fitch, uh, the credit rating uh, um, organization, lowered the U.S. credit rating to double A plus instead of triple A. And they said it was the infighting in Congress. They poured some of this over the uh, debt ceiling vote, but it was also not addressing our rising debt and the interest payment on our debt that's rising because interest rates are going up and that there's a decrease in revenues coming to the government, which is hard to understand because we have such a booming Biden economics going on that our country is doing great according to Joe Biden and his his um, uh, troops around him, his minions or his talking pieces. And so we're, we're being downgraded by one of the companies that do credit rating. And, um, you know, it's interesting because I see it as we have Republicans and Democrats, but there is no leader of an American agenda of where our country should be going. And for them not addressing the debt crisis that we have, we're starting to see rumblings of what's going on. Um, um, uh, The Carlisle group, the guy that's in charge of that, Mr. Carlisle, what's his name? It'll come to me in a minute. He said that we are heading into some very difficult um, um, areas as far as our economy because we're not dealing with our debt. And this is the first time David Rubenstein, that's who it is, David Rubenstein, um, a billionaire. And he said that our failure to get our debt under control is going to be one of the big demises of this country. And uh, this article today I just read was saying that there's going to be an economic downturn at the end of this year, by before the end of the year. And so, This all goes back to what I see as a lack of leadership in the Congress saying, instead of of doing what they're doing, I mean, I'm hearing all these things that they're doing and these hearings they're hearing, they really have nothing to do, if you were to triage our country's major problems, they have nothing to do with what we have going on. You probably saw that thing yesterday where the governor of Illinois, Pritzker, who is a flaming liberal Democrat, they own the Hyatt chain, I will never go to another Hyatt, Um, he just signed that bill to allow non-U.S. citizens to be law enforcement. And the the reason he was saying is there's a shortage of law enforcement. Well, if you look at Democratic policies, defund the police, police brutality, all these things that the Democrats go on, that the, the submission of applications has gone way down. Nobody wants to be a policeman in Illinois in a lot of the other parts of the country that have Democratic policies. And so... They have a decrease of applicants, so they have a work shortage of police officers, and so they're going to now bring in people that are, came here illegally. They're going to make them law enforcement. So you're going to have non-U.S. citizens in the police department able to arrest U.S. citizens, and they're all saying, "Well, we don't. We have a work shortage." Well, yeah, because your policies have created work shortages, and this again goes back to a lack of leadership in this country, and I think. You know, who 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 is responsible for leadership in this country? Number one, we are we the people. But then we give that permission to the president, you know, to the people that we elect in the House and Senate. But if they don't have a common agenda, they're always fighting and nothing gets fixed. It's all it all becomes political. Take the border crisis, the border crisis. We all want legal immigration, I think. But you can't have open borders and and have this argument. Of When it comes down to having you know a resolution for the border crisis and immigration, you can 't have the fight of well he 's a Republican, he wants to deport everybody he 's a Democrat, and they want to give everybody amnesty. Nothing gets done. You should look at what are we trying to accomplish we 're trying to accomplish secure borders. We want people to come in in an organized manner, and this leads into the increase of leprosy. Have you seen that increase of tuberculosis? antibiotic-resistant tuberculosis, uh, we're getting a lot of these foreign diseases on an uptake. Uh, dengue fever, chik- chikungunya, and several other ones are going up, and Zika is coming back. And a lot of these are in South America or undeveloped countries, and these people are coming over here unchecked, and they're bringing that into America, which is affecting us. And this is unconscionable at our government is so broken they can't deal with that they can't deal with the debt they can't deal with what's going on with china and we're in a tough we're in a very serious situation in our history in our lifetimes and the younger people don't know this we do because we have the perspective we can look back at and um i just pray that we have a leader that comes up that unites america and and triages our problems and addresses those
1: See, I don't think this, um, uh, uh, you know, my my wife is always the glass is half full. And she says, well, you're always the glass is half empty. And I always say, well, I'm just a realist. Uh, (laughs) I don't see how you can have leadership without a respect for rules. And everybody must adhere and respect the same rules. That's why I went to the Constitution and looked at it when I became the Senate president to bring it into line and have everybody know it. It's posted, or when I was there, it was posted on the website. Leaders were chosen in terms of what their commitment was to the Constitution. And everybody had to buy into that or they weren't going to be a leader for me. And the presidents began to realize that freedom lies because you have structure. Uh, let me give you a little analogy No, here. That,
0: that, that's good.
1: If you're driving an automobile and you want to turn left, The reason you can do it is that there is structure between the wheel and uh, the steering mechanism that follows the command you want. If that steering wheel were to come off in your hand, you would no longer have the structure that would allow you the freedom, you follow me, to turn left or right. You can't have freedom without structure. And what we have in in D.C. is, let let me just give you something I was going to talk about. Maybe we should save it. Until after the break. But here's something I read in the journal I may have sent to you. I don't know. Congress is on a break. So what does the executive branch do? They start flooding the place with executive orders and nobody's there to check them. You know, that's not respect for the structure of the Constitution and the separation of powers. That, to me, is the biggest problem we have. They don't want. Respect for organization because it can keep them from getting what they want without having to go through
0: the art of negotiation. Okay, the art of it's an art. I think you're 100 percent correct. You know, when when Trump was in there, my last Congress in there, we were having and, and you're going to see it again end of September, they're going to have this ugly fight. The farm bill is going to be coming up for renewal. They're going to have the end of the year spending. And it's going to go into this big garbage bill that nobody wants. And they all say, well, we have to pass it, you know, and it will be one of those ones. They have to pass it to see what's in it. And, um, and when Trump was the president, we're having this argument going in right at this time, you know, come the end of July, Congress is out until the middle of September. And, uh, I, t- I sent word to him that he should call, con- call Congress back into session. The president can do that at will. When he wants to, he can call them back into session. And I would call them back and says, I want the end of the year spending finished before you go on recess. And if they didn't do it, I would call them back and I would call them back. It would be over the holidays until they got their work done. This is something that Trump could have done, and I wish he would have, just to say, games are over in this town. We're getting stuff fixed. And, um, you know, for whatever reason, he chose not to do that, and I think that was a mistake.
1: What bothers me, you know, Trump's an outsider. He comes in. Maybe he doesn't know the rules of the game as well. But Biden has been there forever. He knows every manipulative trick of the rules and has done that routinely and has become – a perverted version of order. I mean, I guess that's the way to say it. He knows how those rules work. Therefore, he breaks them, and he knows when he breaks them, those who don't know how they work won't know the difference. So he's able to make a public statement, a known bald-faced lie. That's what I think is unconscionable, that we don't have somebody to hold their feet. Well, we have the Supreme Court, but they besmirched them, They want to attack them. They're a threat. They hate that. And if they could get their way, they'd probably blow that out of the water and wouldn't have it. And anyway, we're coming up on a break. But uh, uh, when Congress is gone, uh, you know, it's kind of like right now, Ted, I don't have a dog in the the
0: yard out here. Well, the squirrels are going crazy. They know there's no dog, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the squirrels and the nuts are running crazy in Washington, Yeah, they know there's no dog. I mean they figured it out in two seconds. So well, when we come back, you were talking about you gotta have structure and the rule of law. And I wanna follow that up with when you come back and talk about um where we're at with rule of law and we'll talk about what's going on with Trump and what's going on with Hunter Biden and the Biden crime family.
1: Uh, definitely. I'm looking forward to that. And uh chat guys, if you got anything you wanna put in the chat line, let me take a look at it. I I will uh, Pass it along. We'll see it. Uh, we're going to take a break now for Ward's weather and uh, push a little bit of the new sponsor we got. And uh, we'll be right back on the Ward's Scott File. Stay tuned.
0: wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy.
1: Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me. Help. Help. All right. Welcome back to Ward's uh, Weather Report by Golly, brought to you by Lewis Oil. Great supporter, Wendell Lewis and Chevron Stations, Lewis Oil. Uh, well, it's um, a little more com- uh, I don't know, bearable, 90 degrees here in the Piney woods, mid-70s right now. We've had some fantastic storms, though, and we're subject to have them almost any moment. Um, it's just the way it works in July and now August. But, you know, uh, the interesting story I want to share with you is that autumn uh, – is right around the corner, and there's going to be some notable night sky events uh, for people who like to stargaze. Uh, the midpoint of August, in case you didn't know it, is called the Dog Days of Summer. Uh, they will conclude about midpoint of August, from July 3rd through August, There, uh, the Dog Days, as I understand it. And then the Sirius, the Dog Star, will appear August 11th. Uh, it appears to rise and set with the sun. And some ancient people believe that the extra light from the bright star added to the heat of the day. And that's something right in time for climate change, people. Maybe they can take advantage of the bright star, Sirius, and say, my golly. You know, I don't think they'll touch that, though. Uh, they've debunked the myth, and uh, but the nickname continues on. So it will be visible by the end of the month. It will rise in the eastern sky at the tail end of the night before daybreak. And, uh, uh, there you are, my friends. It's, uh, the, <laughs> the ancient people. I don't think we've come much far for, farther from the ancient people. We've got a new sponsor I want to get into real quickly. Caliber sure. Coffee. Uh, go check it out at the website, calibercoffeecompany.com. Um, this is a family owned, business who is faith family firearms and coffee Oh, so right. coffee there you can get your ammunition there you can get <laughs> free shipping on anything fifty dollars or plus um they're out of south carolina they pick their outlets so we're kind of uh, in their uh attention now they, they they notified us and said we like your audience uh we like to put uh our brand are on your uh, website and on your show. So that's how we came to have Caliber Boy, Calibre that's coffee. great. I admire
0: companies like that. Yeah. You know. And
1: uh, I understand that we get paid when you buy something. So, <laughs> you know, be sure to buy something uh, from Caliber Coffee if you want to support the Ward Scott. Caliber Coffee. CaliberCoffee.com. Oh, and it's faith, family, and firearms and coffee <laughs> is their motto. What can you beat? You can't beat that. Well, we're that's talking to <laughs> you. Like that, Ted?
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I like those kind of sponsors. I mean, because they they stand up for values and uh, and, and they came supporting looking for your, us. your your show. So that's that's a yeah. good thing.
1: They came looking for us. So anyway, thought I'd pass it along. You'll see. You'll see that on the website, and you'll that's what I'll probably uh, educate you once in a while. What that's all about. I'm talking with Ted Yoho, and I had mentioned a uh, an analogy that explained freedom for me anyway, because uh, I'm always analogies and metaphors, because by explaining them, you explain the more complicated, which is more difficult to explain until you compare it to the particular item everybody can relate to. That's how analogies and metaphors work. So what I was saying, in case you're just tuning in, is that when we're driving an automobile, we are free so long as all the structure of the automobile is intact and doesn't break. If we want to put the brakes on, we push the pedal, Uh, the automobile responds to our command because of the structure between the pedal and the expanding, contracting brakes. The same thing with turning and all that business. This is the way order and freedom works. You're free there to stop when you want to, to turn when you want to. But if it were to break down, if you will, you would not be free. You'd be subject to chaos. And that's what I see is going on in the government. It's what I was talking about when I was Senate president, making sure everybody understood the Constitution, bought into the Constitution. We advertised our Constitution on the website, and everybody was evaluated, if you will, administrators and faculty, in light of the tenets that we agreed upon would govern us, and that was the Constitution. In my humble administ- uh, opinion, we don't have that anymore. What's worse is we don't even have leaders who care to, you know, you to care to even do it. And um, I don't, you know, the worst thing we've got going on right now is a guy who we know should know better. There's no excuse why he wouldn't know how the Constitution works. He's been there all his life in the government. What has he done? He's used it for power rather than the goodwill of the nation. I'm going to get off my soapbox now.
0: Okay. No, he's a politician. He worries about the next election. And uh, there's no way he's the legitimate president of this United States. I won't use that uh, F word um, because I don't want you to get kicked off. But you were talking about the, the Santa Fe Senate president or the Santa Fe Senate <laughs> and how you needed a structure to follow to be successful. I, I think the, uh, the proof of that is in the pudding. You know, they the number one college in the United States. And so you had that structure, you set it up, you followed it. People knew the rules. You had a constitution that you followed. And um, you, you use the analogy of driving. You know, you have a car, it's got a steering wheel. You had to have a vehicle that will get you from point A to point B and it has to work. You know, but then you also have what we call the rules of the road. You know, uh, you've got turn signals, you've got brake lights. Um, if you're gonna pass, you put your blinker on, you go into the left lane, you don't cross solid uh, yellow lines or white lines. And so there are rules of the road. And you can imagine if you don't have rules of the road, all you have to do is go to some of these foreign countries and there are no rules. And then you get, what you get is you get chaos and you get anarchy and you can imagine just having a free for all out there driving. And the same thing goes for football or any organized sports. This also goes for civil society, civil society. You have a society And what we call civil society is a society that has a set of rules and norms and mores and things like that that they follow so that it is a civil society. Without those, if you get to start to get a breakdown of the rules or people knowing what the rules are but ignore them, like we see in Washington when it comes to our Constitution, you get a breakdown of civil society that leads to chaos. And then after chaos is anarchy. And when you look at uh, the Trump indictments that have come down and the inequity between him and Biden, he's got uh, classified documents in Mar Lago. Biden's got them in two or three different places. Trump gets indicted, the media covers for Biden, and nothing happens. Um, Hunter Biden, I mean, uh, thank God that judge um, uh, took away his sentence. Um, his plea deal, and said, "No, this is ridiculous. This will not work." The mere fact that they had the audacity to put in there the writings that said, "With this plea deal, no future charges can ever be brought against Biden, Hunter uh, Biden." I mean, who in their right mind would sign it? Thank God this judge saw this. and Said, "No, this is this is not, we're not going to do this." And so, what we're seeing is a breakdown of civil society in our government. And if you don't follow the rules. You get that chaos. You know, that's why you have the argument on the border. I mean, they're doing transgender hearings and things like that in Congress. They're not focusing on the major things. And when you get that breakdown of chaos, it, it, it spills over into society. And if, if they're not getting charged with that, why should I get charged with that? Or if they're not following the laws, why should I follow the laws? And I'm hearing more of that from people. And then again, you go into anarchy. But what happens is other nations are watching what we do. We're losing our credibility. And, you know, we saw the Fitch rating go down. Uh, Other nations are not, they're getting to a point where they're questioning our resolve to bring our country around to where it should be. And this is gonna go down to uh, a leader. And if we don't have a leader that can unite this country, uh, the glory days of America will be in the history books. And if you get the Obama um, dogma or the Abominization of our country that rewrites history, everything we've done up to this point, good or bad will go away and it'll be written in the hands of the people that put Obama in there that are extending this through Biden. And um, you know, it's a sad day for this country if we don't change this, And so it can be changed. And, you know, if you want to comment on that, since it's your show, no, no, uh, very, I wanted to go into the water temperature and the earth on fire. That was in the again in the Wall Street Journal. I want to go into that, too. But
1: uh, just to summarize what we're talking about, I like the way you took it out to the road, that there are rules of the road also. And that's perhaps where we see the greatest chaos Um when we have people who are cutting in and out of traffic. So to carry the metaphor on, the good drivers don't do that, and the bad drivers do it with impunity. Right, It's the impunity that gets you when there's no penalty for that. And there's no penalty right now for bad driving in Congress. I got to tell you, um, just on the level of bad manners and rudeness, Pelosi tearing up the State of the Union behind Trump's back as he delivered it, I think that, you know, was the most embarrassing thing I have seen in my lifetime as a United States citizen by a public, in public, by a politician.
0: I would have to agree agree with with that. Huh? I would have to agree with you. That was just one of the most disrespectful things I've seen. I understand her dislike or hatred for Trump. But not in the decorum of that chamber of what it's supposed to represent and what it has represented for two hundred years plus
1: if you, um, don't, if you don't respect the decorum of which you are a part, she is a part, then she doesn't respect herself, and that for me was the bottom. I, I thought, wow, wow, wow i wouldn't let wise. i wouldn't let. My child do that. I would be embarrassed if my mother did that.
0: Um, you know, we talked about censoring them. But, of course, again, you looked at who we had for um, our leadership was Kevin McCarthy. And you didn't want to go down that road. Uh, we, I mean, I was on my way out. and I remember this very succinctly. And I said to Kevin, I says, Kevin, it comes down to wrong versus right. You know what's wrong. And what she did was wrong. And you know what the right thing is to do. You know what their their response was? Well, the, the election's coming up. And and I'm like, damn the election. Do what's right. People will follow you if you do what's right and you're convicted on that.
1: Well, the other thing about talking about is courage. And, well, there's very little of that. Most people want to be liked. And they're afraid of not being liked if they do something that upsets somebody. Um, it is a very difficult to find people in public life who, um, as Truman said, take the heat. And they're worried about placating the loudest, most obnoxious group with the least sense. Um, that's how we get into this Antifa and Black Lives Matter and the street, as was pointed out yesterday on one of the programs I happened to catch. The January 6th thing has been outpaced, if you will, repeatedly oh, in the streets man. of America. I mean, within, with no penalty for changing lanes without a blinker. It's, it's, it's none. In fact, they've been put on a pedestal. As oh, that's how heck- we get from point A to point B is to drive recklessly. I I don't see a leader... Being able to get through the morass of firewalls that are deliberately put up there to keep them from making it. The press will knock them down, or the sitting liars will knock them down. You know what we're really being run by right now, Ted? We're a nation that's being run by the
0: lawyers. By what? The lawyers. The lawyers yeah, well, public opinion lawyers um the media it's i don't know it's it's just a a strange feeling in America today, you know uh we definitely have lost our our way um, I was trying to look up something on this um, on the hunter Biden thing, but it'll be another time, but well.
1: Let me just go to this article we were talking about a moment ago. It just came out this morning. The Biden, I'm just going to, this is an opinion page in the journal. The Biden administration's regulatory onslaught is more unrelenting than the heat. With Congress leaving town, the White House last week dumped another, are you ready for this, truckload of regulations that will cost Americans hundreds of billions of dollars Corporate lawyers are enjoying this beach reading, obviously in allusion to, um, you know, who on the beach. Here they are. The Transportation Department Friday proposed a 696-page rule raising corporate average fuel economy that would effectively require 100% of new cars to be electric by 2032. How about that?
0: Um, is that right? I hadn't it, heard that one.
1: Yeah, this would be is more, even more aggressive than California's electric vehicle mandate, it, which would not ban the sale of new gas-powered cars in 12, 2035. Passenger cars would have to achieve 66.4 miles a gallon <laughs> in 2032. The ramp-up for trucks... And SUVs even steeper to 54.4 miles per gallon from 32.1.
0: Lunacy. It's yeah, the,
1: the automakers will have no way to comply but to make more EVs. This is going down while Congress is out of town. Here's the kicker. The Energy Department is also proposing to reduce the miles per gallon equivalent for EVs. For example, the F-150 Lightning's rating would decline to 67 miles per gallon from 237 miles per gallon. So this would mean automakers will have to produce even more EVs to meet these standards. Hey, that's just one. And I've got three pages of these things, Ted.
0: Well, again, this whole thing with the EVs, electric vehicles, if you want one, get one. I think they're great. I'm not going to use one. It won't pull my boat. It won't take me the distance I want to go. If I'm in the Keys right now in marathons and a hurricane is coming and I have to evacuate, I could probably get to a little north of West Palm Beach on a charge. I, I can go 300 miles, say roughly 300 miles. So there may be Orlando. So I could get to Orlando. The hurricane's coming. Now I've got to wait in line to get charged. It's going to take me an hour or two to get it charged. And if the grid goes down, I'm stuck. This is the most moronic thing a government can do. They should look at new technologies. If they're worried about CO2 and all that, go to nuclear power stations, the the small modular reactors for energy for homes and factories and businesses. And then look at hydrogen economy or hydrogen fuel versus the EV, because I'm not extracting uh, hundreds of millions of tons of raw Product out of the earth to refine it with all the pollution that comes with that to create EVs that are a temporary solution and they really don't go after the the what we're trying to accomplish. If you believe in all the garbage they say on climate change, and this takes me. Have you heard the water temperatures? And I'm probably getting off subject. Go ahead on
1: that. Let's hear that. I
0: like that. All right, the water temperatures. I've been, you know, I've been coming to the key since the '70s, and. I've had reports from friends that have come down here, and they're saying, man, the water temperature is 100 degrees, 102 degrees. And I'm like, no way. And they said, oh, yeah. I said, well, does it feel that way? And they said, yeah. So we're down here. We go to the sandbar where we normally do. The water was fine. I mean, it felt a little, maybe a little bit warmer. I've got a thermometer uh, on my Lawrence depth finder. We're out in the Gulf in about six to eight feet of water, and it's registering 114 to 117 degrees. I jumped in the water. You know our bodies are 98.6. So you can tell if it's cooler or hotter than your body. And I jumped in and it felt cooler. And keep in mind these these instruments go through the GPS and it gets downloaded. And I'm not saying there's something nefarious going on here, you know, with numbers being manipulated, but I'm going to get a thermometer. I'm going to go into the water and I will give you a mercury thermometer reading when I talk to you next. And then there was an article in the paper today, earth on fire because of climate change. And they were talking about all these fires and the media has gone on and and the New York post or times, I think it was post put 50 um, journalists on pushing this narrative because of climate change. There's all these wildfires around the world more than we've ever seen in Australia, in Canada, the United States. But if you read the article, it says that's a bunch of hogwash because what happened is they've watched with the satellites over the last 20, 30 years the amount of fires, so they know how many what's normal. We're actually less wildfires now than we have been in several years. But yet the media is painting this picture because of climate change. Keep in mind the Washington or the New York Post has hired journalists to push this narrative. Uh, of saying the world's coming to an end because of climate change with all these fires, but yet the amount of fires around the world have decreased by, I think, it was eight percent in the in the United States and a couple countries it went up, but overall the amount of fires in Africa and other countries has gone down, so the overall number is down. And um, you know, I just think it's a lot of BS, and it's, it it goes back to trust of your government. And then you got to look at where we are. We've got the World Economic Forum uh, wanting to push the one world governance so that they can control the people and they can control resources. And, you know, people think that may be a conspiracy, but I'm telling you here, it's fact. Um, All you have to do is look at some of the policies coming out. You know, the whole thing with um, 100% EVs by, what, 2050 or 2030?
1: And the article here, too, goes into that, says that the – um the industry penalties for not um, fulfilling this order could total as much as $300 billion, and um so the automakers are not going to get into that. Meanwhile, the administration claims that their proposal will reduce CO2 emissions through 2050 by 885 million metric tons, but the journal points out that that is about half as much as Canada's, Canada's wildfires are projected to release this year. Right. Um, furthermore, the administration on Friday proposed a 236-page revision to the National Environmental Policy Act, guidelines that will, will require federal agencies to consider climate change and, quote, right. environmental justice, end quote, in project reviews which means if a utility wants to build a gas pipeline, the agencies are going to have to evaluate if a solar plant would better promote environmental justice.
0: Wow. Well, the thing going on now, it ties into environmental justice and discrimination. Um, the rich countries have put the poor nations at risk of climate change because of our wealth. And so their solution is to tax us more, to give money to these poor nations that go to the corrupt politicians. And the money, the goal of money is to create solar farms and all this stuff. And it's just, it's the wrong way to go. And I wish the American people would wake up and see that. Uh, Oliver Stone woke up and he he did that movie, uh, Nuclear Now. And I recommend people to watch it here's a Hollywood liberal saying that Hollywood and Jane Fonda did a disservice to the nuclear industry because, I mean, he goes into the the, the amount of people that have ever been killed by a nuclear accident. Uh, Three Mile Island, nobody. Um, Chernobyl, I think it was over like 4,300 people. Fukushima in Japan, nobody. Um, there might've been one or two people that got exposed to, radioactive stuff in the beginning, but it was only like one or two people. And um, the climate change, people will say, well, that's one, one or too many people. Um, But when you look at the benefit of nuclear, that's where we need to go. People really need to think about hydrogen in their uh, vehicles, you can do hydrogen fuel cells, and we can create hydrogen out of garbage. And then we, um, you can have hydrogen combustible engines, there's fleets of buses running up in Canada strictly on hydrogen. GE and Boeing are doing research on airplanes running on hydrogen. The byproduct is H2O. It's water. And there's better ways to do this. And Tom McClintock is a congressman out of California. He did a great dialogue at the uh, Natural Resources Committee on the lunacy of doing the, 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 all this mining for all these EVs. I encourage people to listen to it. It's only five or six minutes, but it is so succinct. Tom is one of the smartest guys I know up there. And he does a great job on delivering the lunacy of what the left is trying to do by trying to save the planet. They're killing the planet in other ways. And um, it's just, it's not sustainable. And that's one of their favorite words: We want it to be sustainable. Well, it's not, it's just, it's, it's again, it's a lack of leadership and somebody saying this is wrong this is the way we should be going as a nation. And if we did that, the world would follow us.
1: Well, it's been a fascinating conversation yet again on a Wednesday fans. For those of you who are watching and in the chat line. And yes, uh, Tim, we talked about you, I think before you checked on, your ears should be burning. Great
0: job there, Tim. Yeah, Tim, we,
1: br- we, we are giving you a, a big round of applause here, my man. And, uh, uh, you know, we'll call on you again sometime if we need you for sure. And Ted's uh, you know, well, sometimes you want to take the reins, Ted. Jump in, everybody. Uh, if I have to be out sometime,
0: but um, Ooh, that's commitment there. Now I don't. No, know. Know,
1: man. <laughs> well, it wouldn't be. You know, we. You know, you're doing well enough on Wednesday. We'd better leave you alone, man. You know, you <laughs> leave you coming right. in on Wednesday. So much everybody's looking forward to all the time, and I certainly look forward to it. And I'm glad you look forward to it. I think what we do is is really worthwhile. Yeah, it's a. Well, we
0: got a nation to save. And, uh, yeah. you know, through shows like yours that go out and help educate people and, and get them engaged and, and motivated. And I know your listeners are that type of people that are God, country, and family, and they want to put that first. And that's the legacy we want to pass on to our future generations.
1: Yeah. In fact, you uh, know, you can go take a look at uh, coffee, calibercoffeecompany.com. Faith Family Firearms and Coffee. There That's you go.
0: Right. Sponsors of the Ward Scott Files. <laughs> okay.
1: Have a great day, Ted. And uh, we we'll look forward we'll to talking to you a week. I hope. Okay. Uh, Warthog All right.
0: to- take care.
1: Bye-bye. Ward Hog Bye. Command Center out.